friend, and welcome to The World Transform. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? Man, I am great. We have got an interesting show this time out. We're going to talk about magical technology, and I know that as soon as I put those two words together, it's going to flip a switch, and you're going to reference the Arthur C. Clarke thing. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, any sufficient technology, sufficiently advanced technology is, you know, indistinguishable from magic, right? Indistinguishable so, yeah. from magic. So we've got some technology here that is still, I think, distinguishable from magic. But you can phrase them in such a way that it sounds pretty darn magical. And it's, once again, the blurring of that line between technology that does neat, neat things and technology that does stuff that you just go, whoa, wait a minute. Is that, is that real? Is that possible? And I think the best way to explain what we're talking about is just let's talk about a few of these. The first one we've got, here's the headline, NASA's idea for making food from thin air just became reality. It could feed billions. So this is really interesting. And, you know, we have kind of talked around ideas like this in the past because we've talked about sequestering carbon dioxide from the air and turning it into fuel. Right. For, for, for powering automobiles or even aircraft, potentially. So we know that there's energy in the CO2 that's in the atmosphere or that's in the, just coal or in, anywhere you want to find carbon. Carbon equals energy for, for our economy, but also for our biology. We, we, we actually feed off stuff that's made out of variations on carbon or things that can be they can be well we we are you know we learned from the 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 star trek the motion picture phil that we're carbon units that's right (laughs) carbon-based units and and so and so there it is we've got all this carbon floating around the atmosphere and you can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and do interesting things with it and one of them it turns out is you can make a protein powder out of it they're calling it solian i believe is how that's pronounced not quite soylent which is which is good, and and I believe if you go back, the original premise of Soylent Green, the movie that we've referenced any number of times, and of course, which was the inspiration for the product Soylent, which is this this food replacement. I believe the I believe the premise of Soylent Green was that they were doing something along those lines. At least that th- that was what they were saying they were doing. As you know, not to spoil right. that movie, they were doing something else. But uh, actually, we've spoiled it on this show before. But we, but anyway. Um, Solian is made out of CO2, water, and electricity. And so you get this kind of high-protein flour that tastes like wheat flour, which is already very interesting to me because uh, I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, they're saying it's mostly a protein, but it kind of tastes like wheat flour. So those of us who have experimented with keto, those of us who try to cut our carbs, right off the bat, if you can make a protein powder that, powder that uh, excuse me, a protein flour that tastes like wheat flour, that's already a tremendous advantage, I think, for right, people right. in this day and age. But just the idea of pulling food from the atmosphere, doesn't that have a bit of a feeling about it, if not magic, then kind of the replicator from Star Trek, right? Don't you kind of feel like we're heading in that direction when we see when we see a story like this? Well, it's it's pretty amazing. Bill, that uh, well, you can think about it. Everything that we eat, pretty much, that was once alive, right? I mean, you have, uh, you know, whether it be plant or uh, or animal-based uh, food, it's uh, that's directly from something that was uh, living. Well, this is this is you're, if you're pulling this from the atmosphere, what you're doing is you're just getting the component parts 
the chemistry of food and putting it together in such a way that you're uh, you're making something that's edible and and and, and good, you know, and apparently uh, can can sustain you. That's uh, you're you're getting to something a little more fundamental than uh, than than the. Uh, what you what you have when 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 you eat, eat uh, stuff that's once alive, you, you you're getting down to the chemistry, and that's that is a little bit like the replicator, right? The replicator just would put things together, you know, in, in, in science fiction, it would put it together based on uh, a, a plan it has in the computer, right? Right. And right. Just that's right. At the at the chem, at the chemical level. So yeah, that's kind of yeah, it's kind of what we're doing here, I guess. Kind of almost almost magical, and and a very cool idea in terms of, well, it would be great to pull some of that carbon out of the atmosphere. Anyway, we always talk about anything we could do with that carbon other than have it sit there in the atmosphere might be a good idea. Right. But also a great way to provide food to people who need food, which is always a fantastic idea. So you look at this and you go, well, this is a great value proposition all the way around. And I hadn't even thought about it. There's the, there's the ethical side of it. This is the vegan's dream. You don't even have to kill right. plants. Right, you have much less animals. <laughs> <laughs> nothing has to die. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing has to die in order in order for you to eat. That's a that's a that's a big step forward. But you had actually linked a sort of related story because we've talked about all these alternatives to agriculture, especially to to livestock, uh, factory farms, and those kinds of things. And this kind of falls in line with that when you talk about creating a creating a food source from the atmosphere kind of falls in line with what we've talked about around fat meat around uh, around uh, gr- growing growing food in in plant or not plants what would you call it in vitro right right growing right. Growing, growing meat in a laboratory rather than uh, rather than actually on an animal and so there's a lot of these interesting alternatives being being thrown around and you had a really interesting one here tell us about it Edible insects. Uh, can it be sushified is the is the story, and there's a link in the show notes there. There are some really good for you insects. You get a lot of food value out of it, and it's so much easier on the environment than even chickens. You know, chickens are held up as a as something that's much better for the environment than than cattle, and they are. Right. Uh, but even better than that, you know, it seems like the smaller the animal you get your food from, the better it is for the environment. And uh, mealworms, for example, are very, mu- are very much that way. It's a high-quality protein, no, very little uh, impact to the environment. And so that, that would be, that'd be great. But, you know, here's the thing. You're eating worms, and people are, are kind of grossed out by things like that. And the, and the uh, idea of this article is can we sushify insects? Because there was a time when eating raw fish, uh, as you would in, in sushi, was unthinkable in the Western world. And uh, we, over time, got over that. Most of us did. Uh, there's still a few that will not eat sushi. But considered a delicacy yeah. for many, many people. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people just won't eat fish, right? Right. <laughs> so much less sushi. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, raw. But uh, over time, there's a substantial portion of the population has decided that's not that's not gross. It's actually it's it's wonderful. It tastes great, and I'm eating it. And uh, I can I can tell you a little closer to home, Bill. Um, there's the there's the case of the crawfish in, here in Louisiana. Right. That was, you know, very much of a, a Cajun thing. That's what the folks down there, you know, south of Baton Rouge and, and, and everything, they, that's what they ate. 
us up here in North Louisiana, are you kidding? That's gross. You know, it's a, uh, <laughs> and then we, and then we, and then we actually uh, tried it, and oh my gosh, this is like the best thing ever. When they're in season, uh, you, you, you can hardly go to a party anywhere in Louisiana and parts of Texas now, and and Mississippi, and you know, and, and other places uh, across the South where there, you know, these things are not being served. I mean, they're they're that good, and. Uh, I, I don't know, Phil. You're you're a Colorado guy. Uh, do y'all eat crawfish in Colorado? We do, indeed. We have uh, there there are restaurants that serve it. Put it that way. I mean, there are okay. There are C- Cajun style restaurants that that serve crawfish, and people definitely do eat it. It's not something I think that people typically will pick up at the store and bring it home and eat. Um, probably yeah. because we don't we we wouldn't get it as fresh as you do as you do down there. But I can echo that. And it's just been, it's just been over the last few decades. It's just been over the last, what, 30 years or so that that's become something that people eat widely outside of, (laughs) outside of New Orleans. Yeah. As a kid in Kentucky, we would have thought the idea of eating crawfish was like, well, we'd have called them crawdads for one thing, but (laughs) it's like, no, you take that, you put it on your hook, you catch a catfish, right? And then you eat that. And then you eat that. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Excuse me, you brought me the food that my food eats. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But now here we're literally uh, talking about eating worms, right? Which is another right. more bait, right? It's like uh, <laughs> Yeah. But to me the difference is the the difference here the only reason the sushi thing con, uh, contrasting this from sushi, put it that way. The, the, yeah. the reason this doesn't work as a sushi comparison is sushi is all about you're just eating fish in its purest, most natural form, right? We're just we're just taking slices of the fish. I mean, sashimi particularly, slices of the fish and putting it on a plate, and you're just eating that fish meat. Great. If I eat an insect, I want it to be as far from the pure insect eating experience as possible. You know what I mean? I, I, I want it to be nothing <laughs> yeah, like eating an insect. I want them to have turned that into something, a taco or something that. The, the, I mean, if you follow this link and look at this picture, it's just all these pictures of bugs on plates, and it's just like nobody's doing that. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I I will not eat bugs if it looks like there's bugs in my plate. I, I have a natural, long-standing revulsion to if there's a bug in my salad to send my salad back, right? So I, I feel like there's a, you know, there's a there's a real uh, leap that has to take place there around packaging this stuff to to make it work. But I think it can be done. I, I think I think Well, you know, I think, I think take it there. take it and turn it into a protein powder to be sold right along to the side of this other protein powder, right? There, this is there you go. this yeah. is from the air and this is from millworms over here. But uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's all good for you. And right. uh, I I think that, that could be done. I was thinking about the first thing that we were talking about, Phil, the the NASA thing, food from the air. Is there's there's substantial CO two in places like Mars, right? And yeah. uh maybe that maybe that's part of what they're thinking there. If uh if we can if we can if we can get food uh, from Mars without setting up greenhouses, I mean, even before we have, we, even before we have greenhouses, we can we can uh, produce this. Uh, that's that's that would better able that would enable us uh, to uh, better uh, feed ourselves there on Mars. To be a kind of a fallback thing. That's uh, an interesting idea. I I wonder if I wonder if that's why NASA is looking into that because this does seem kind of far afield for NASA, doesn't it? I mean, it's a great idea. Let's let's solve climate change. Let's solve over over pumping of carbon into the atmosphere. Let's solve world hunger. Well, world hunger is everybody's problem always to solve all the time. But it doesn't seem like a NASA style project. However, when you think about the fact that oh, there's CO two in the Martian atmosphere, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what's going on there. Maybe so. Maybe so. Pretty interesting, interesting stuff. 
Yeah. All right. All right. Let's let's move on to our next magical technology, a new law to describe quantum computing's rise. Okay. So we followed the link here, but let me just read a little bit. This is really interesting. Nevin's law states that quantum computers are improving at a doubly exponential rate. If it holds, quantum supremacy is around the corner. Say it's a new kind of rule to describe how quickly quantum computers are gaining on classical computers. It started as an in-house observation um, at the Google Quantum Spring Symposium a while back. And I think that's interesting because the obvious parallel here, here is to Moore's Law. And Gordon yep. Moore was working at Intel when he made his observation that, that computer chips were basically doubling in power every 18 months. Well, here we've got if, – if, if you're feeling bad that you haven't heard of Nevin's Law before, uh, this, this Google Quantum uh, Spring Symposium was this spring, May of yeah. 2019. This, this is, is a new observation. New. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, new stuff. And, and this, goes, this goes very interestingly with stories we've done in the past couple of years about how Moore's Law is running out. We keep hearing that Moore's Law is over, it's done, we're not going to see that kind of doubling anymore. And so now we've got, okay, but quantum's coming on, and they double-double. So instead of increasing by powers of two, it says quantities grow by powers of powers of two. So you got two to 221 to, uh, I'm sorry, two to 221, what is that, trillion, 222 billion? No, no, 222 billion, 222 million, 223,224. Doubly exponential growth featured in the recent Quanta story, computer scientists expand the frontiers of verifiable knowledge where it described the extreme rate at which certain computational problems increase in complexity. Doubly exponential growth is so singular that it's hard to find examples of it in the real world. The rate of progress in quantum computing may be that fast. So if we, if we double the doubling speed, what's interesting about that is you keep hearing, well, we'll have quantum computers here one of these days but it's still a long way off. There's still all these technological problems to solve. There's still, there's still problems around actually getting quantum computers to address the kinds of computing challenges that, that our everyday computers need to address. But if you're improving performance at this rate, uh, it won't be that long at all. And that's where the, that's where the idea of quantum supremacy comes from. And this, one, this is another one kind of appearing out of nowhere. I think in a few years we're going to have quantum computers, and it's going to be as though they appeared out of nowhere. Right. Um, I, I th and, and here's the thing: we we probably will not be carrying a quantum computer in our pocket like a cell phone. It'll be a it'll be a quantum computer because these things uh, they have to be, uh, you know, in a place that is not subject to being jostled and everything else. What we're going to be doing is linking to these things with our classical computers, including right. cell phones and devices and things like that. When we have a quantum problem, uh, we'll be connected to one of these machines, and uh, it'll. It'll be solved like that. So we'll, we'll have benefit of it uh, as if it were in our pocket. But the quantum business will be someplace else in some lab somewhere. But uh, I that's, think that's, that's true. Uh, failing some breakthrough, failing some yeah. cold fusion of quantum computing that could come along at some point. And I'm sure right. there, there are people working on it. But other, otherwise, I think you're right that the quantum computers will be sitting someplace. It'll be a very 1960s model of computing, right? Right. You've got a big, a, a big bank of computers sitting someplace. Um, but with a very modern twist, because we'll be accessing them with our smartphones and our, our laptops, and um, using using the devices that we currently have that carry what we consider a lot of computing power on them, almost as dumb terminals. They'll almost right. be like the the old dumb terminals for the for the mainframe systems, because the quantum computer will have that much more computing power. So that's an interesting 
very interesting future that I think might be closer than we might be a little bit closer than we think it is. Real world examples of uh, growth like that, I don't think we've ever seen. And uh, that, was, that was mentioned there in the article. It's rabbits, they're pikers. You know, they, they they're not even, they're not even in the same uh, in the same ballpark with this. Fibonacci famously came up with his sequence of numbers, looking at how rabbits reproduce, and you do get right. that that nice exponential growth with with the Fibonacci sequence. But this is just ridiculous. This is this is growth beyond our ability almost even to imagine it. So right. if, that's, if that's happening with our technology, it's probably not just the advent of quantum computers that will be coming before we know it, but it's all the strange applications that we're not even thinking about right now that will become commonplace. This is almost now, a singularity in the in the offing kind of a story here, right? We can't know what's on the other side of this. And, that's right. And, the, and, and that's what we say when we say singularity. Uh, singularity, you know, of course, originally black holes and things like that, right? You, you yeah, don't, that's right. You know, beyond an event horizon, you don't know what's going on with the uh, with the black hole. But this is this is sort of a singularity in history. We don't, once, once this gets cranked up good, it's going to be uh, a, a much different world than what we have currently, hopefully for the better. Well, I think it will be, but time will tell. The thing is, less time than we think. We're going we're gonna to get there sooner than we think, potentially, and stuff like this will be driving us. But even if that doesn't happen as soon as we think, we might live longer than we think we're going to. And why is that, Stephen? Tell us about this last story. <laughs> next, next story, cell repro- reprogramming leads to reversal in cell aging. When we are adults, Bill, we, uh, we have differentiated cells. We are... Uh, uh, the cells of our body all have their jobs to do, and fortunately, they almost always do those. Uh, when when they don't, it's called cancer, and that's a bad thing. So, th- these cells of our body have to do what they're what they're uh, supposed to do. And uh, so, what do you do if uh, you know? Can you um, turn back the time uh, clock on some cells? Yes, you can. But the problem has been that turn the clock back, and then they'd be poly. I'm, I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sure. But it, 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 thank you, thank you. Yeah, you could it, they could become anything, and uh, that's a problem. You don't you don't need you know a, an organ of your body growing in a place that doesn't need to be or something like that. So, um, but this this is a uh, this is a, a a new thing, Phil, that would allow them to reverse cell aging, and yet the the cell still has the job that it's meant to do. And so, that aging heart cell it now is a young heart cell and it's still doing its doing its beating so that's a, that's a good thing restored youthful performance is uh, what what the goal is here and that, that's a good thing isn't it well that's a fantastic thing I, I love yeah. I love the idea of restoring youthful performance uh, as they say here I think when you put those words together in that order that is that is beautiful that's a that's, yeah. a, that's a fantastic thing to go for I would just add that uh, you can market with that uh, you know, pretty much any, <laughs> there's there's a lot of products that can be marketed with those three words. Yeah. It, well, there are a lot of products right, that are marketed <laughs> with those three words, but what if it actually worked? Right? That's exactly. Word. It wasn't just snake oil. It was for real. Yeah, yeah people would be uh, knocking down your door to get it. So uh, that's great. That's a, that's a fantastic story. The idea that we could take a mature cell and move it back in time almost, right? It's almost a doctor not Doctor Who, Doctor Strange kind of a thing, where the where you're isolating the passage of time and you're taking just one cell and moving it back in time, moving it to a to a younger stage, but not all the way back. I mean, the analogy would be taking you, Stephen, and turning you into a young guy in his early twenties, right? Not taking you and turning you back into an embryo, right? 
that, right. that's, right. that, that's kind of the difference. You take these cells, and if you wind them back to um, an earlier stage, they become, as you said, these cells that can become anything. And that's just, that's dangerous. That's, yeah. you, you go putting those in your body, who knows what they'll grow into, right? But if you make them a younger version of themselves, just a younger, healthier version of themselves, well, I mean, what are we made of? We're made of cells, right? If you can take a big enough collection of your, of your fully mature adult cells and turn them into more youthful versions of the same thing, I don't know, feel like, feel like we're onto something there. The blood transfusions, that, that they've, they've been kind of working with that, and particularly in animals. I mean, they'd take an aged mouse and give it a blood transfusion from a young mouse, and all of a sudden its coat's getting glossy again, and it's beginning to move around its cage better and everything. That is a uh, kind of a proof of concept of this, that the, even, even uh, blood transfusions from, from a younger creature can, can do that. But, I mean, what if uh, we go beyond blood and it's, and it's actually your cells? That's a, that'd, that'd be a great thing. So. Well, yeah, especially because you don't have to go finding a young specimen and take their yeah. blood away, you know, to, <laughs> exactly. to, to make this happen. If, if, there's, if there's something you can do to your own cells, and I, I just have glanced at this story. We've got, we've got it linked here. It's over on the Methuselah Foundation. But obviously, whatever they're doing is, is very isolated to a few cells right now. But if, in principle, you can take mature cells and rewind them to this earlier stage. I wonder how it would work, you know. W w would it be a matter of you could do that to your blood cells and then that would that, that would carry? Yeah, and what would the over? treatment look like? I mean, uh, would I just have to lay in bed, you know, and, and have something circulate through, you know, uh, uh, from an IV bag for, for, uh, for six hours or so one day and see you back here in three months and do it again? Uh, what, what would treatment like that look like? I don't, I don't know. We're a ways off from seeing that. What, yeah. what we want it to be is a potion, right? If we're sticking with our magic tech idea, I just want to drink a potion, and then, <laughs> yeah. and, and and then all our cells start to reversing themselves to an earlier healthy state. But I'll, I'd certainly settle for an IV bag. In fact, it'd be okay if you could take some of my blood out, culture it, rewind the cells, and then give me give me new young blood that then makes the rest of my body work younger, something along those lines. Hey, we're just spitballing here, Methuselah Foundation, if you're listening. Try some of these things. And I'm willing to volunteer you, Stephen, as a guinea pig. <laughs> there's, there's no sacrifices too great as long as it involves trying it out with Stephen. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that is a sacrifice I'm prepared to make. That's all. I'm just, that's a, it's a step uh, I'm ready to take in the interest of science. You know, you don't want to be uh, a science denier, right, Stephen? I was under the impression that you like science. Well, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe I have the wrong idea. We'll have to uh, talk about this offline. Look, they need to keep doing it with mouse cells and with cells in, in right. petri dishes and so forth for a while here. But eventually, eventually, this can this can turn into something. And I think the the fact that it's happening in principle, like with these other two stories, in principle, you can make food out of CO2, which we didn't know we could do. In principle, we've got computers that are exponentially exponential, which means incredibly cool things happening, potentially. And here you've got, you know, the potential fountain of youth. So it's all, it's all kind of magical sounding. And I guess what we need for each of these is to get them past the magical stage, get them, get them to the point where, because well, a lot of this and, and one of these stories kind of powers all of it, right? I mean, if we've, if we've got the quantum computer, the, pr the problems that uh, were unsolvable before become solvable. That's right. And you get all kinds of cool things, including this stuff. All the rest of this. So, well, as so. as you always say, super intelligence is all other superpowers are downstream from super intelligence. It's the enabling technology. It's the gateway to all of it. So, yeah.
Absolutely. The, the genie in Aladdin is just smarter than everybody else. That's why he's able to perform all that magic. He just he, he knows a lot of stuff we don't know. That's, that's, that's why he can do it. All right, well, there's your three wishes. If you want three wishes, I wish I could have food from thin air. I wish I could have a super fast evolving computer, and I wish I could be young again. You know, those aren't, those aren't bad wishes, and here we've got science directing us towards solving all three of them. So I think with that, Stephen, I'm going to say this has been fun discussing this with you. We are going to be back very soon with another show talking about more fun stuff. And until next time, live to see it. 